0: Ever Closer Union, an introduction to European integration. This is the fourth edition, published in 2010, written by Desmond Dinan. Chapter 16 Beyond the EU's Borders By virtue of what it does internally, the EU has a big external footprint. In addition, the European Union has a number of policies that specifically address issues beyond its borders. Trade policy, development policy and humanitarian aid are obvious examples examined in this chapter. The common foreign and security policy is a key component of the EU's external relations, but is examined in the next chapter along with the EU's efforts to organise itself as an area of freedom, security and justice. The EU aims to promote abroad what it seeks at home – stability, security, democracy and sustainable development. In pursuit of these goals, the EU has entered into a bewildering number and variety of highly institutionalized bilateral and multilateral arrangements. EU external action, as external relations are called in the Lisbon Treaty, give the impression of intense busyness and procedural complexity. EU politicians and officials are constantly engaged with their non-EU counterparts in structured dialogues, ministerial and summit meetings, joint parliamentary committee meetings and the like, spawning new initiatives, declarations and communiques. The power of word processing becomes fully apparent when reviewing official EU documents in the realm of external action. In no other area of EU activity does procedure seem so much more important than substance. Not that the EU is an ineffective international actor, rather its global impact is less than the combined weight of nearly 30 European countries would appear to warrant. Yet the EU is both more and less than the sum of its parts. EU competence for external action is exclusive in some areas, such as trade policy and limited in others such as security and defense policy in an international system still dominated by power politics the influence of the eu is inevitably constrained actual or aspiring superpowers such as china india and the united states see the eu as it is a collection of countries with limited global power not as the eu wants to be seen a post-national entity capable of shaping global affairs on the basis of soft, non-military power. The special nature of the EU has given rise to a branch of external action that is truly unique, enlargement policy. Chris Patton, a former external relations commissioner, has described enlargement as, quote, the most successful foreign policy pursued by the EU, end quote. The purpose of Enlargement is to bring countries into the EU, after which those countries cease to be an object of EU foreign policy. Enlargement has been successful not just procedurally, but substantively, in that it has helped to achieve the EU's core objectives. Stability, security, democracy and sustainable development in the EU's immediate neighbourhood, which has been incorporated into the EU proper. Given the unusual nature of the EU, external action has always posed an internal organisational challenge. The Lisbon Treaty included numerous changes relating to external action, not least by upgrading the High Representatives for CFSP, now the High Representative for Foreign Affairs and Security. Combining the position with that of Commission Vice-President and calling for the establishment of the External Action Service Procedural changes in the Lisbon Treaty enhance the power of the European Parliament in a number of policy areas, including trade. Part 1. Enlargement Enlargement, the accession of new member states, has been a permanent feature of European integration since the early 1960s. Countries have wanted to join the EU for a variety of reasons, such as better market access, more trade and investment opportunities, and eligibility for structural funding and agricultural subsidies. Security considerations have also been a factor. Why has the EU wanted to expand? The ethos of integration is inclusive. From the beginning the EU has sought to promote prosperity and strengthen security by bringing European countries together Enlargement enhances the EU's identity and sense of purpose. It also raises the EU's international image and potential policy impact. Finally, it brings economic benefits for the existing member states in the form of a larger internal market, with more intra-EU investment and trade. Nevertheless, enlargement can be disruptive and costly, at least in the short term, Enlargement has also become a highly complicated process because of the mismatch between the growing policy scope and institutional complexity of the EU. On the one hand, and the relatively poor economic situation, weak administrative capacity, and shaky democratic foundation of many of the most recent new members, and of the remaining prospective members on the other. Iceland... A sophisticated, stable, well-off country, despite the impact of the financial crisis, would have little difficulty meeting the demands of EU membership. Ukraine would have a tough time doing so, and would be much more difficult than Iceland for the EU to digest. As seen in Chapter 6, the EU drew up the so-called Copenhagen criteria for membership in 1993. The criteria set out the general economic and political conditions that applicants must meet. In order to join the EU. Guarantees for democracy, rule of law and human rights, a functioning market economy, and the ability to take on the obligations of membership in all policy areas. The Copenhagen criteria were drawn up for the newly independent Central and Eastern European countries, whose transition to democracy and capitalism became synonymous with transition to EU membership. The most obvious criterion for EU membership a criterion stated in the EU's founding treaties, is that a country must be European. In the west, Europe begins or ends with Iceland and Greenland. In the north, with Norway and Russia. In the south, on the shores of the Mediterranean. But where does Europe begin or end in the east? With Russia, which stretches all the way to the Pacific Ocean? With Georgia, Armenia and Azerbaijan in the southern Caucasus? With Turkey, only a small part of which lies on the western side of the Bosporus, traditionally the dividing line between Europe and Asia Minor? The answer is political, not geographical. For the purpose of joining the EU, a country is European if EU leaders decide that it is. Many Europeans doubt that Turkey is European. Nevertheless, the Council of Ministers decided as long ago as 1963, when it approved an association agreement between the European Community and Turkey, that Turkey is European. More recently, in December 1999, the European Council recognised Turkey as a candidate for EU membership. In December 2004, it decided to open accession negotiations. Discussions about Turkey's Europeanness seem pointless despite the fact that leaders such as Nicolas Sarkozy in France and Angela Merkel in Germany want to keep Turkey out, or that the negotiations have stalled. A majority of EU leaders would prefer that the EU's eventual eastern border remain uncertain, not necessarily because they want more countries to join, but because they do not want to weaken the EU's ability to leverage economic and political reform, a process called conditionality in prospective member states. The EU holds considerable sway over aspiring member states whose prospects for membership depend on meeting the Copenhagen criteria. If a country knows that it has no prospect ever of joining the EU, it will be unlikely to respond well to EU efforts to influence its behaviour. The EU's enlargement strategy rests on three pillars, meeting its commitments to prospective members applying fair and rigorous conditionality, and better communicating enlargement. The EU omitted another key word, credibility. How credible is the EU's commitment to extend membership to Turkey, given that prominent EU leaders have stated unequivocally that Turkey does not belong in the EU? How credible is the prospect of the EU acquiring new members in Eastern Europe, let alone the Southern Caucasus? A far corner of Europe. Opponents of further enlargement worry about the EU's quote-unquote absorption capacity, an imprecise term suggesting that the EU's institutions and policies can cope only with a finite number of member states. It's impossible to say what that number could be, although some people have a definite idea of what it should be. Empirical evidence shows that the EU functions surprisingly well with 27 members, with or without the Lisbon Treaty. Undoubtedly, enlargement is awkward and messy. It alters the EU's institutional arrangements, complicates decision-making, and changes the EU's character. Such is the nature of ever-closer union. Advocates, as well as opponents of admitting new members into the EU, acknowledge, quote-unquote, enlargement fatigue, public weariness of the seemingly endless procession of EU accession. Between 2004 and especially 2007, most people in the EU paid little attention to enlargement. The scale and impact of the 2004-2007 to 2007 enlargement ended the obliviousness. Horror stories, real or imagined, of Romanian migrants in Italy, Fears about Polish plumbers undercutting their competitors in France. The rumours about lawless Lithuanian migrants in Ireland brought enlargement to people's attention in a wholly negative way. Unease in Western Europe about the labour and social consequences of enlargement is magnified many times over when the country in question is Turkey. Enlargement fatigue really means concerns about jobs, migrants and social disruption. Apart from Turkey, the universe of possible new member states is quite large, it includes the countries of the Western Balkans, which all of which are designated by the EU as either candidate or potential candidate countries, Russia, which is unlikely ever to want or be allowed to join, Belarus, Moldova, and Ukraine, and the three countries of the Southern Caucasus, Georgia, Armenia, and Azerbaijan. There are also a few prospective candidates in Western Europe, notably Iceland, Norway and Switzerland. This is a section from Chapter 16 of Ever Closer Union, an introduction to European integration by Desmond Denan. This is the fourth edition, published in 2010. A section called The Eastern Partnership. The European Neighbourhood Policy (ENP) is the vast organisational umbrella under which the EU conducts its relations with the countries of the quote-unquote wider Europe. The EU's neighbours to the south and east, running in an arc from Morocco to Russia, include everything in between. The Maghreb, parts of the Middle East, Turkey and the Balkans, and much of the former Soviet Union. Five countries under the ENP Moldova, Ukraine, Armenia, Azerbaijan and Georgia form a subgroup called the Eastern Partnership, together with Belarus, which is in the wider Europe but is excluded from the ENP because of its human rights abuses. Poland and Sweden proposed the Eastern Partnership in May 2008 at a time when France was emphasising instead the importance of the EU's relations with the southern Mediterranean countries. The partnership was formally launched at a Summit of Leaders of all of the participating countries in May 2009. The Eastern Partnership is a framework for relations between the EU and the participating countries with a view to promoting the rule of law, good governance, respect for human rights, protection of minorities, free market principles and sustainable development. The usual list of EU external action objectives institutionally the eastern partnership includes occasional meetings of heads of state and government regular meetings of foreign ministers and frequent meetings of national and european commission nationals uh, european commission officials the eu offers association agreements with each non-eu member of the eastern partnership but without an explicit promise of eventual eu membership Funding for Eastern Partnership activities comes from the financial instruments of the European Neighbourhood Policy, within which the Eastern Partnership fits. With the possible exception of Ukraine, countries in the Eastern Partnership are well behind the countries of the Western Balkans in the EU accession queue. The EU likes to say that successive rounds of enlargement have brought the countries of the Eastern Partnership closer to the EU. In fact, enlargement has brought the EU closer to these countries. Belarus is an unreconstructed European dictatorship that seems impervious to the pull of EU soft power, and is in many ways, and is many years away from membership. The EU has long imposed various sanctions on Belarus, but to little or no avail. Despite keeping Belarus out of the neighbourhood policy, the EU reluctantly decided to bring Belarus into the Eastern Partnership in the hope of gaining some influence over the country. Moldova, a small country wedged between Romania and Ukraine, is desperate to develop a close relationship with, and eventually join, the EU. The EU is eager to help Moldova, from with which it signed a partnership and cooperation agreement as long ago as 1994. From the EU's point of view, Moldova is a model partner, susceptible to EU influence and willing to undertake difficult reforms. The only fly in the ointment is a so-called frozen conflict, a legacy of the bloody secession from Moldova of Transnistria, a small enclave along the border with Ukraine whose population is predominantly pro-Russian. The EU is trying to resolve this conflict. But although the EU has considerable leverage with Moldova, It lacks influence with Russia, whose support for Transnistria is the main obstacle to a settlement. Without a resolution of the Transnistria problem, Moldova has little prospect of EU membership. Strategic considerations account for the high degree of EU interest in Ukraine, a bigger country, larger and more populous than France, that borders Russia and three EU member states. The EU signed a partnership and cooperation agreement with Ukraine in June 1994, only days before signing a similar agreement with with Russia. The EU-Ukraine agreement became operational in March 1998, after extensive ratification delays on both sides, yet Ukraine's failure to restructure its economy stymies Western investment in the country, and threatens the political independence that Ukraine and the EU want, above all, to maintain. The situation in Ukraine became critical in November 2004 when mass demonstrations paralyzed the capital city following a disputed presidential election and precipitated the so-called Orange Revolution. Acting as a counterpoint to Russia, the EU helped to broker the agreement to hold new elections at the end of the following month, which Viktor Yushchenko, the pro-Western candidate, won by a convincing margin. EU relations with Ukraine improved following the Orange Revolution, but Ukraine remained divided between the pro-Russian eastern part of the country and the pro-European western part. The Ukrainian government was also bitterly divided, for personal rather than ideological reasons, between Viktor Yushchenko and Yulia Tymoshenko, erstwhile allies in the Orange Revolution and the two most powerful Ukrainian politicians. Given Russia's hypersensitivity about Ukraine's relations with Western organisations, the fragile state of Ukrainian politics, and the state of the Ukrainian economy, the EU treads warily in its dealings with Ukraine. Specifically, the EU is unwilling to state unequivocally that Ukraine has a good chance of joining the EU anytime soon. Azerbaijan is a oil-rich country in the South Caucasus, bounded by the Caspian Sea. Corruption and organised crime are pervasive, and political institutions are weak. Because of its wealth, Azerbaijan is not susceptible to EU leverage. The security situation in and around Azerbaijan has been tenuous since Nagorno-Karabakh, a predominantly ethnic Armenian enclave in the southwest of the country, unilaterally declared its independence in 1991. Nagorno-Karabakh is not recognised internationally and remains constitutionally part of Azerbaijan. Fighting over Nagorno-Karabakh has cost thousands of lives and embittered relations between Armenia and Azerbaijan. A diplomatic rapprochement between erstwhile enemies Armenia and Turkey that began in 2009 may help to resolve the Nagorno-Karabakh situation, as Turkey is influential in the region and strongly supports Azerbaijan a Turkic country. By contrast, the EU has little influence in the region. The participation of Armenia and Azerbaijan in the Eastern Partnership may help to improve their bilateral relationship and strengthen economic and political reforms in both countries. As far as EU membership is concerned, neither the EU <coughs> excuse me, neither the EU nor Armenia and Azerbaijan are even thinking about it. The EU's relations with Georgia briefly took centre stage after the outbreak of war between Russia and Georgia in August 2008. President Sarkozy, in the European Council Presidency at the time, immediately embarked on a peace mission and helped broker a ceasefire. The EU subsequently sent a monitoring mission to oversee the agreement. Although Russia has denied the EU monitors entry to the breakaway from Georgia, territories of Abkhazia and South Ossetia. While sympathising with the plight of a small country, Georgia, that is being bullied by a much larger neighbour, Russia, most EU governments distrust Mikhail Saakashvili, Georgia's volatile leader, and worry about the weak foundations of Georgian democracy. Few governments would risk inflaming relations with Russia by bringing Georgia into the EU, a prospect that is remote in any case, because of Georgia's political situation.